podcast 169 in our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. And as promised in uh, last week's podcast, this time we're going on a journey into the future. Where will we be going in 2053? Not us, uh, necessarily, (laughs) me and Simon, but the world's travellers in general. But first, a couple of tweets, Simon. Uh, Yes, of course, you will recall that last week we were talking about all the many things that go wrong with travel. Rebecca Halpern tweeted, flexibility to change plans if necessary is important at the moment. You have to have a backup plan for if your flight is cancelled, which in our case, we ended up choosing a different destination entirely and uh, well then Daniel also reported chaos at Channel Tunnel nobody allowed in or out that was uh, was a couple of days ago Uh, what was it all about well, there was a couple of things, actually, and it just shows how mad this summer has been in terms of disruption. Um, partly it was the manhunt. You oh, well, that's recall. over now. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, but they, they were checking all the lorries and they actually blocked the coastbound motorway uh, down to Dover, the M20, um, in order to search lorries and things. And then on top of that, a completely separate event at the uh, Euro Tunnel terminal at Folkestone. They detected some suspicious uh, materials and closed down the whole thing for outgoing traffic for some hours as well. So um, it's wh- wherever you are going, it is likely that you are going to face disruption, which may or may not be over well, thirty years from now. Yes, and uh, j- just quickly, yeah, picking up on on Rebecca's uh, very good piece of advice, I think there's a limit to um, what you can um, uh, <laughs> prepare for and uh, how many backup plans you have. Um, it could be quite complicated, couldn't it? Anyway, today's big topic, what might the big changes be in travel? What will there be more of, less of, and by when um, we're strapped in and ready to go? Along with our now well-established AI friend, Dervler. Welcome to... Travel 2053. First, Dervler, can you give us a quick overview of planet Earth in the 2050s? How many people? What will the leading countries be? I'm sorry, but I cannot provide real-time or future predictions as my knowledge is limited to information available up until September, 2021. Predicting the exact population and leading countries of the world in 2050 would require access to future data and complex forecasting models, which I do not possess. Well, I suppose that 30 years from now, Dervla might well have uh, acquired the powers necessary based on her enormous uh, data banks to make these predictions. But for now, I'm going to have to rely on you, Simon, for informed prophecies. But uh, can we start with a few assumptions that we haven't managed to destroy the world? and that humans will still want to travel, have holidays and see new places, meet new people, experience new things, etc., and that others will want to scrape a living or trouser shed loads of money from this uh, deep-seated human desire. Uh, And Simon, first off, where will we be going which is new? I mean, I remember that you visited a new uh, resort which was making the desert bloom in Saudi Arabia. Is that a shape of things to come? Well, certainly Saudi Arabia is doing all it can to create from 
almost nothing a tourist industry in a nation which many of us would still see as fairly medieval in its outlook on the world. But absolutely 30 years from now, Saudi Arabia will be seen as one of the world's leading destinations. And um, let's hope that perhaps it might have uh, progressed socially as well. Yeah, but what sort of things will we see? Will there be um, I don't know, you know, rainforests created uh, beside the Red Sea and stuff like that, or would it not no. be quite to that extent? I, I, I'm not sure the extent to which the desert will actually bloom, but you can be absolutely sure that there will be a kind of um, slightly uh, more environmentally considerate version of Dubai rising from the Red Sea shores. There will be a fair amount of adventure tourism and the cities, I think, will be much more open. Um, maybe, obviously you and I won't be able to go and have a drink there, but maybe people might even be sitting by the the uh, Red Sea um, enjoying a drink one day. Well, if they're still drinking alcohol, um that might well have uh, that might well have gone by the wayside, don't you think? But uh, anyway, um, how about um, deep sea adventures? You see, I um, I had this uh, sort of fantasy, sort of based on uh, having read too much Jules Verne when I was uh, young about um, uh, sort of cruise liners instead of uh, sort of m- making uh, uh, the surface of the sea uh, look extremely untidy and messing up uh, historic <laughs> cities um, actually uh, traveling underwater um, and uh, sort of building on the uh, tragic uh, experience of that uh, um, t- titanic uh, submersible um, disaster but actually providing a, a mass tourist experience yeah, I'm not sure to the extent to which even 30 years from now it would be a mass tourist experience. It will certainly be a tourist experience. Yes, of course, it was June 2023 that uh, this company, Ocean Gate, um, unfortunately, the submersible, I think we call it, rather than the submarine, imploded. Um, everyone very sadly died because the, the, the uh, pressure was simply too great for it. But exploring the undersea world most certainly will be one of those um, uh, kind of prized targets along, I think, with going into space. Ah, um, yes. that, that people we, who've got a lot of money and want to spend it on doing something very different with travel will will be able to do. Well, Dervler, are you still there? Um, and if so, do tell us a bit about space tourism. The most common form of space tourism in the early 2020s involved suborbital flights. These flights took passengers briefly to space, typically reaching the edge of space or the Kármán line approximately 100 kilometers or 62 miles above Earth's surface. Passengers experienced a few minutes of weightlessness and saw the curvature of the Earth. Well, that's how things um, are at the moment. But do you think in um, 30 years we will have progressed to maybe actually um, going to visit a holiday camp on Mars or um, (laughs) uh, spending a couple of weeks out there rather than a quick uh, out and back to the same place? No, I don't. Um, It's quite possible that if we as a species kind of colonise the moon with, with a permanent settlement, which may indeed 
happen in the next 30 years. Um, you and I, I think, are the only people old enough to remember the first moon landing in 1969. Yes. And it's extraordinary that, that so little has helped in a lunar travel sense since then. But I think more significantly will be that. So this technology at the moment, which allows, for instance, Virgin Galactic to take tourists up into space, they just go to the edge of space um, and they come back again to New Mexico. Well, there is, of course, the possibility and this actually wouldn't require too much in terms of new technology or new thinking you could go from you could blast off from new mexico and actually turn up at one of the putative spaceports in the uk whether that's in um, in cornwall or indeed in shetland and so yes what we've what what for decades people have been talking about hypersonic travel getting from uh, london to sydney in two hours well, we won't quite be able to do that but it might might happen however of course it will only be for the few and uh, i think you know, air travel hasn't really changed since 1970 and i don't suppose it will actually change much in the next 30 years ah well i wanted to talk about that because um i mean surely there will be uh fewer flights um, of conventional planes unless these conventional planes get a lot greener. I mean, I, I, it seems that the experiment of uh, building very large planes so you didn't have to have so many isn't working out very well. And uh, and I remember that in last week's podcast when we were talking about the uh, air traffic control meltdown in the, in, in the UK, that uh, unless... Uh, there's a great deal more resilience built into um, into the air transport uh, model that this is this is going to become a greater and greater disaster. So that's planes might have to change and airports will have to change. I mean, maybe Boris Island, which I think a, a lot of us um, rather dismissed as a sort of deluded scheme to draw attention to um, certain <laughs> uh, Mr. Johnson when he had his uh, <laughs> had his eyes on the uh, um, the ultimate prize of being a prime minister came up with. Um, but uh, maybe that wasn't so daft after all. Well, Dervler can just remind us about that. A new four-runway hub airport, by offering spare capacity, will deliver far greater connectivity for the UK through increased links both to the UK regions and the global economy. It is estimated that it will provide a national connectivity contribution of 92 billion British pounds to UK GDP in 2050. It will support 336,000 jobs nationally, two-thirds of which will be located within London and the Thames Gateway. So that was the big sell for what was supposed to transform aviation in the UK. It was completely dismissed by the Airports Commission, which said, no, we've got to have a third runway at Heathrow. Um, that hasn't happened. It might do by 2053. There will certainly be a second runway at Gatwick by then. But in terms of how we're flying... Um, I think it will be more of the same. Electric planes, well, they keep putting the date back, as, as with so many great technological developments. So EasyJet was planning to be flying electric planes on short routes, such as Gatwick to Amsterdam, 
by 2030. I don't think there's any possibility of that. The big problem is that um, aircraft require fuel with very high energy density and carbon-based fuels, kerosene, which is what they use at the moment, is great for that. Batteries are absolutely useless and they're heavy as well. So um, uh, I I think we'll be waiting a bit longer for for that but hopefully by 2053 something will have happened and meanwhile um let's hope that uh, high speed rail has expanded and we might even have seen hs2 completed by then another <laughs> british disaster scheme <laughs> well i mean surely trains um must get cheaper or become competitive with flights or actually um uh, made the only option, as has happened, I think, in a very f- um, far-sighted way in France, where actually um, you cannot fly um, between certain cities. You can only get the train. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, but I, I was wondering um, that given that it does seem very difficult to make uh, uh, trains less expensive than they are, and I'm not sure whether this is down to just the... Uh, um, profit motive, or because they are actually quite expensive to uh, to run, that maybe what they need is um, something um, added to their value, so that uh, like cruises, um, you'd actually have entertainment and experiences on your train. And I'm thinking, um, for example, of um, the model of retail um, now shopping, which I don't do a lot of, mm. um, but which I hear a lot about. <laughs> on Radio 4 in particular, um, apparently only survives in its um, uh, in its sort of actual form, as distinct from its sort of online form, um, by making shopping an experience. I'm not quite sure what this means. I did go to a uh, extremely smart clothes shop in, in London's Covent Garden the other day, and it certainly felt like a kind of um, art gallery, I suppose I would say, um, although they didn't actually seem to be any people working there but there were lots of sort of rather lovely clothes artfully arrayed all over the place um, and I couldn't really find any of the ones that I actually wanted Um, but that's not the point I mean the point really is that um, presumably you could do a lot more with um, uh, a bunch of travellers in a train carriage than um, just um, sit them there (laughs) and uh, sell them an occasional overpriced beer or cup of tea. I think you're right. Uh, It's a question, though, of getting the basics right first, uh, i.e. having fast, reliable, frequent trains at good value. But let's assume that we've uh, achieved that. And yes, lots of opportunities for uh, enjoying the rail experience that much more. And certainly the uh, boutique in Carriage 9, I think, would be a a great way to uh, pass the time time between um well london or maybe even just a station slightly to the west of uh, central london at old oak common and birmingham um so yes a, a good plan just going back to the french by the way they have played an absolute blinder at convincing the world that they banned short-haul flights within france where you could cover the same territory in less than two and a half hours on uh, by rail what they've in fact done is not ban Uh, flights of that duration and indeed if you want to fly tomorrow from Lyon to Marseille um, there's plenty of opportunities for you but they've got lots of publicity from having having said that they would like to do this well maybe 
in in these days of spin PR marketing etc the message is the medium rather than um, Marshall McLuhan's uh, marvelous the medium is the message <laughs> I think you could be right and here's the uh, other interesting um, terrestrial transport story which I think may um be very very uh, significant in 2053 and that is autonomous vehicles now uh-huh. i have been on autonomous vehicles they're fine i've i've been on a sort of trial one in um, abu dhabi there's a, a bus that i'm hoping to catch from uh, edinburgh to uh, across the firth of forth which is a, an autonomous vehicle now very early days but if you do sort out all the problems with well hang on what uh, if you can see something's going to happen do you override it what are the legal problems with um your car your autonomous car hitting somebody else's autonomous car well if you can get past those then actually you can pack a lot more capacity onto our existing road systems and things like hs2 might be um kind of forgotten because if you wanted to get from Streatham to Manchester you would just um, poodle out of your your road join the A23 and a stream of very fast flowing very smooth running um, electric cars and uh, your your vehicle will find its own way there and um, so who needs who needs a train we shall see so it'll be like a travelator as it were almost you know where those things that um, sometimes are working at um, Gatwick Airport and mean you can uh, yeah. whiz along to your departure gate and often actually go past it because <laughs> they they don't stop at all of them, do they? But uh, yeah. anyway, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's quite a nice thought. That and um, what about um, something that I rather like the idea of um, jetpacks? Oh, I mean, yes. do you think they will become a a crucial part of uh, well, all travel, but but particularly holiday travel? I kind of rather like the idea of um, of checking into a hotel and being given the uh, key card to my room and my mini bar if uh, alcohol is still allowed um, in those um, years to come, and uh, and then being given um, a key or something to my bespoke jetpack and then um, <laughs> it'll be pre-programmed with all sorts of things. So, uh, i.e., uh, instead of bothering with um, AI and Dervler and uh, or even looking, uh, can I mention it, um, whatever the uh, future version of TripAdvisor is, um, I'll just kind of click the button on my jetpack, which has a knife and fork on it, and be whizzed <laughs> off straight to um, my the best restaurant in town. Oh, Mick, um, I'm, I'm genuinely touched you've given this so much thought, even to the little <laughs> icons that you will be pressing. But I'm afraid it isn't going to be... I only just thought of that, but I was sort of uh, thinking yeah. on my feet, but no. ha-ha, I won't need to <laughs> if I've got a jetpack. Uh, thank you. Yeah, the, um, jetpacks, I don't think so, but eVTOL might well oh, be helping out. So this is um, electric uh, or electronic vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And the idea is oh. that you get all these little electric helicopters effectively and they they can be pilotless and they will basically just shuttle around. I went to a, 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 a car park in Coventry um, where they've actually kind of got the first dock for these things. Now they don't exist, and they they um, 
they couldn't go from one to the other because uh, they've now taken down this um, this temporary dock in the car park. But the idea is that actually you can vastly increase uh, transportation if you have a smart system of these e-VTOL things. And look, uh, people like Uber have been talking about them getting here in the early 2020s. Of course, that, uh, like so many things, has gone um, uh, has um, passed by without actually happening, but something like that will happen. But of course, that then requires incredibly sophisticated air traffic control that doesn't break, as we talked about last week. Yes, it is a bit of a um, vicious circle. And I must say, it comes back to what uh, um, Rebecca Halpern, a friend of the podcast, um, tweeted at the very beginning of the program, which is, uh, you have to have a backup plan. Um, And um, yes, um, as we know, we are uh, sadly bad at uh, that kind of thing in the UK and maybe uh, as uh, humans in general. Uh, Now, I don't know about you, Simon, but I think that um, uh, the excitement of discussing the uh, different kinds of transport and possible changes uh, that we might see in it over the next 30 years has meant we haven't really had any time to discuss destinations and and sort of what the travel brochure of the future might show us when we uh, open its pages, click on it probably online, or maybe actually have it fed directly into some sensor in our brains. But uh, (laughs) let's leave that one till uh, next week, because there's really lots to be uh, covered. I mean, including um, the sort of um, stuff that you mentioned earlier um, in in the context of Saudi Arabia, which is the ability um, that those with some vision, uh, a lot of money, and maybe even some um, um, iron-fisted control over their population can actually create out of nothing. Yes, very good idea. And of course, if this episode of You Should Have Been There um, has has uh, uh, landed on one of the sensors in your brain and you would like to uh, tell us what you think about uh, uh, transport in the future, about holidays in the future, about how it's all going to work, of course, we'd love to hear from you. And all you've got to do is tweet or go to X, whichever term you prefer, and you'll find us at you should have BT, or even better, go to anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there and leave us an audio message. Well, to help stimulate the imagination and as a reminder, if any was needed, of some of the more extreme or out there experiences that are currently available to the intrepid traveller, here is Dervler for the last time. Antarctica. Travellers can experience icebergs, glaciers, and unique wildlife in one of the most pristine and isolated environments on Earth, Mount Everest. The challenges of high altitude, extreme cold, and treacherous terrain make it an extreme destination for mountaineers. Papua New Guinea. Visitors can encounter diverse indigenous tribes, hike through dense rainforests, and explore some of the most remote and untouched areas in the world. North Korea. Tourism to North Korea is tightly controlled and restricted, making it an extreme and highly unique destination for those interested in closed societies and political intrigue. So thank you very much indeed for listening. We'll be back to the future next week. But for now, from me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.